Hello and welcome to the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. I'm Callum Newman and I'm getting my buddy Gary Norton back today because I want to talk a little bit about options. Um, they've become part of my trading set and portfolio management and I think they should be part of yours too and Gary is going to tell us why. Now Gary is a former investment banker, now runs his own capital. He is, author, is also an author of the book An End to the Bull which I think is a fantastic book. I've read it a couple of times, I've got my own copy here, and I'm gonna give it to a young bloke here at the office uh, who's keen to learn about uh, shares and trading and all those types of things. I think Gary's is a book that, if and if you're the same, you should be reading. And even if you've been around the markets a, a long time, I think it's uh, an excellent resource. I always enjoy talking to Gary, he's been on before. He's very knowledgeable about the markets. He always knows what's going on. And uh, we're going to bring his insights to you uh, today. So here he is, Gary Norton, author of An End to the Bull and uh, hedge fund manager as well. All right, Gary, uh, I wanted to get you on multiple reasons. I think this type of market that we're having in now really suits to some of the styles and techniques that you talk about. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book that you wrote uh, some time ago now, An End to the Bull, which we've talked about before. Reason being, we've got a young guy here at the office who's curious to learn about valuation, equities, trading, you know, just wants to absorb as much as he can about how to find stocks and, you know, why they go up, why they go down, market risk, all that type of thing. And he asked me for some books that he might read. And of course, I wanted to give him your one because I, you know, rate it so highly and think it's fantastic. So I'll be doing that uh, today. Now, one of the reasons I want to talk about, and I think we have a great example from today's market, is you talk about the concept of pricing in and how you can trade either uh, against that sometimes, uh, what the market has priced in. And I thought we had an example where the share markets, the equity markets, ran in or ran up to the end of last week uh, to the talk that the uh, Fed chair was going to give on the assumption that he would you know, take a... a either a soft line or he wouldn't rattle the cage too much. They discounted it as not that important. And he came out, he was more aggressive than had been priced in with what he said. And of course, the stock market got absolutely hammered on the day in the US, which flowed through on Monday to uh, Australia. So do you just want to talk a little bit about this concept of pricing in uh, for a guy like uh, Carol, which we've got here, who's learning from the markets, uh, that concept? Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, it's, it's such an important concept and the idea of market positioning and how market positioning itself influences outcomes. Um, it's one of the more complex areas to understand in a way. Um, and there is a rival thought process, right? So what a lot of investors and traders do is, is use the, the other approach, which is, for example, if you use technical analysis or lots of others, which is just the idea that the market is ahead. Right. That's the competing kind of um, idea. The market is ahead. Now, that's much easier. And that just says, well, people are buying because it's going up. So if, it, if they're buying, you buy it, too, because it's going up. Pricing in is basically saying, no, they're not buying because they know it's going up. They're buying because they think it's going up, but they could be wrong. Um, and most of us that have worked, you know, I think in a professional level in this industry, we don't go with the idea that the market is ahead. We believe that markets price in. And, and like you just said, it's a classic example. And it means that 
you know you have to sort of work out okay what are people pricing in all you know you do, you do that constantly right and against that you're always saying is there anything coming out that could challenge that thinking you know and so you know a classic one would be you know earnings for a company you know stocks going up going up everybody loves it and then the earnings come out that's a classic example of when people are going to find out if they're right or if they're wrong and you, as you rightly said, Friday was another one. Stocks had run up over the summer months in the, the, the Northern Hemisphere summer months. And there was an expectation, I think, amongst um, perhaps more the retail side of the industry that the Fed, yeah, they'll be aggressive in the short term. That, but by next year, they'll be off, you know, and they'll be perhaps even cutting rates because the economies will slow and they'll be cutting again. And what we saw from Powell was nothing, not even a hint about when they were going to cut. It was just about raise, raise, raise. And of course, that yeah, people hadn't priced that in, and there was an immediate repricing of, of risk assets, equity markets straight away. So that concept of working out what's being priced in and then looking at the calendar to see if there's anything that could challenge that is really important. Of course, as well, that sometimes things come in that are not on the calendar, there's just new information or you know some news event that will again hit people. But um, it's an important concept if you, you know, to, to, to trade to that next level. It occurred to me too, when Carol asked for the books, um, you write in this book um, how you admire uh, George Soros and his concept of, is it reflexivity that he calls yes. it? Yep. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as well? Yep, absolutely, because it, it goes hand in hand with the idea of um, markets pricing in. So the reflexivity is like I said that there's markets there's an interaction between players in markets and if we think about that what I just said about uh, investors you know are constantly placing their bets that's what they're doing and then you know we need to see whether they're right or wrong now if you want to put an analogy that is similar but different you would say let's go to a roulette table right people place their bets on a roulette table but the point about the roulette table is that each people's each player's bet doesn't influence the outcome. It doesn't influence each other. Um, so if everybody bets on 24 on a roulette table and 24 comes up, everybody wins and they win a, a certain amount, right? It doesn't matter how many people, 100 people play 24 or one, they all win the same multiple. Um, and if they all lose, they all just lose what they've put in. But in the investing, it's a bit different. This idea of reflexivity is that if everybody's bet on something, let's say everybody's bought a stock, and it turns out that that stock is a is a dog, right? And I actually I don't know why we use that expression "dog" for a stock because dogs are great animals. So why do we use that expression? <laughs> and I'm going off topic here, but why do we use that expression that a dog stock is like a bad one because dogs are great animals? So I'm not going to use that expression. Dogs are the out, <laughs> It turns out that that is a really bad stock. Let's say everybody's thinks that this gold exploration company is going to strike gold in a big way, and it turns out they don't. Everybody loses. Now, the, the reflexivity angle is because everybody's wrong and they all have to get out, that influences the outcome even worse to the downside. If fewer people had bought or they hadn't, you know, let's, now let's say those people had leveraged as well. That again, you know, now they've borrowed money. Now they're really in trouble. They get margin calls. So reflexivity is the idea that the uh, actions of people in the markets can also uh, trigger the responses and it can influence the outcome. So markets are not this thing where 
um so we're like a roulette table where it doesn't matter what people bet it does matter how people are positioned if people had not bought stocks in the run-up to powell's comments if stocks had been sort of unchanged over Ju july and august they wouldn't have reacted as severely as they did on friday and this is so, this yeah. ties in too with your known criticism of technical analysis right because if we take the the fed chairman speech uh as an example the market was trending up and of course, other technical traders say, look, the market is trending up. Therefore, you should be going with the market. And then yep. you just run into a brick wall, right? Yeah, exactly. So technical analysis, they make certain assumptions. And you know, I just obviously just don't agree with those assumptions. One of them is that the market is ahead. So these people have been buying stocks because they know things are good. And you know, that that that's wrong in a couple of ways. One, it assumes that people are smart. And and I you know we know that a lot of people lose in this industry. So I, I wouldn't ever make that assumption. Um, it also suggests that there's a kind of, as Soros has said as well, there's a predetermined outcome. You know, if you say that the market is ahead, that these people have bought because they know it's going up, what you're saying is that the outcome's predetermined. But that's clearly not true. The outcome in the markets is never predetermined. So that those assumptions are incorrect. Um, and the other assumption or the other thing that technical analysis says is that, you know, data and news events and macro is not important. Right. It's you, you can ignore all that. Just look at the chart. The chart tells you where the market will go. And, and that's not true either. We, we know that. Right. We know that company earnings. We know that things like what Powell said, we know they're important, you know, and realistically or, or in reality, all technical analysis is, is, is some sort of shortcut that people like because it makes easy decisions. But it's not valid. It's not reliable. It's not robust. It's more complex to sit there on Thursday and say, what's this market pricing in? What could happen? What could Powell say? And come up with the idea of, well, people are pricing a good thing. and But if Powell says something that's a bit more hawkish, they could be wrong. Okay, now where do I need to be positioned? That's all a bit more complex. And the other really key point about this idea of pricing and reflexivity and, and working out how markets are positioned is the idea that it um, you have to be able to create contrarian positions to the market. And a lot of investors and traders are too uncomfortable to do that. And I think, you know, if you are going to, you know, go to the next level as a trader, particularly in, in what I do as a trader, you have to be comfortable and able and willing to go against the market, to be contrarian sometimes, to say everybody's long this thing. I, I just think there's a chance they could be wrong. And the, the point about that is that the payoff, if they're wrong. I was just about the word, know, the word payoff was in my mind, as I was about to say. The payoff, of absolutely. course, is if sometimes, you're right, you make, it can make a huge gain. Exactly. And sometimes you, you don't even say, I think this stock's going down. Sometimes you just think you can work out, well, the payoff, if that happened, would be such a good trade. And you could use, for example, options. I think we may talk about options. But you know, in that situation, you could look at a put option, perhaps, and say, if they are wrong, I could get an eight to one payoff, for example. Well, that's just a good trade. You know, I'm happy to take that trade because there is tomorrow power coming out and there is a chance that they're going to be wrong. Well, so I can all just, of these things just as in. a as a example of that, literally, I had a couple of puts in my account. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't actively trading that speech, but I can tell you, on the Monday when the Aussie market went down two percent, those things went up two hundred percent in a day because the volatility went through the roof as well. Uh, and that's just an example of if that hadn't happened, though, of course, the market may have gone up what, half a, like a half a percent or whatever, and 
it wouldn't have been yeah. as damaging to the, to that to that value. No. So and and uh, those options may have lost you know five percent of their value on that day, right, or ten percent of their value, or whatever the, the decay was, and a little bit more perhaps. So that's that payoff, right? You make two hundred percent, and if it hadn't have happened, you may have lost ten percent, for example. Um, and you know, I, I've said before if not to you elsewhere that one of the great pieces of advice i had from the best trader i ever was you know i ever worked with and was lucky enough to learn from was you know he said to me once gary you'll make the most money on a trade when you have the opposite position to everybody else and you know he's not saying you should always have the opposite position but he said you know when you are short when everybody else is long if they're wrong, they're the days that you're going to have those great days. And, and when I teach traders, what I say is you need to have that in your armory if you're going to get to the next level as a trader. If you're going to get to a high level, you need to be able at times to be contrarian, to say, you know what, I, I can have the opposite position here. Um, if you're able to do that and comfortable to do that, that's how you can become like a really good trader. If you're not and you always just want to go with what everybody else does, then you're going to be okay. But, you know, I often say both, both in, in not trading, but also like when I'm teaching soccer and that, things like if, if you do what everybody else does, that's the definition of mediocrity, isn't it? Just doing what everybody else does is being the same as everybody else. You know, you're never going to become very good by doing what everybody else does. And that includes just everybody else is buying, I'm buying too. You're just with the herd. And, and that's, I, I don't think that's a comfortable place all the time. Well, just just for now, I did want to get on to talk about options because I think they're very important. And I'm learning this as I go. I don't want to make it sound like I'm a great options trader or anything like that because I'm not. But I have traded the index and I've used them to hedge and that type of thing. And now with this experience behind, I think they're so important. And I'll give you an example why. Earlier in the year, about April, May, I have a wealthy friend who's got a, you know, his account run by some advisor kind of thing. And I said to him, you know, this market is just looking dicey. I don't think, um, I think you should consider hedging your portfolio. You should set up an options account and, and write some puts against the market because it's just, it just doesn't look good to me. And he went, oh, no, I don't bother. I'm in for the long haul. Um, yep. uh, you know, it'll be fine. Anyway, he's down huge amounts of money now because obviously, especially through June, the market just got absolutely hammered. Um, that's one aspect of options to, to protect yourself. But of course you can yeah. take advantage of it. Now at that time I bought a few as an aggressive kind of player, made some money. I had another crack, <laughs> lost some. Um, but I just want from your perspective, to, to, for anyone listening, who's generally, I think we were talking before that people come on into the industry. They're kind of happy to hold shares. They invest for the long term. I'd say the uplift to the next level, if you like of options, it all seems a bit too hard for everybody. From your perspective, can you talk a little bit about why you want to have or learn about options and how you can use them the different ways? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. And, and I think you've already highlighted one of the great areas for options, which is as a hedging tool. Now, hedging is something that a lot of investors don't do and are not comfortable with it, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's not wrong, right? It's absolutely correct at times. Um, and the way I put it is that consider hedging uh, like insurance. You know, people insure their homes. Because if their homes, you know, got not even if their home got destroyed, but if you had 150 grand damage to your home, you you know you would obviously want the insurance to cover that. You insure your car, and cars are, are you know generally far less valuable than than homes, where people will insure them, and and 
what I would suggest is that using options as a hedging instrument, think of them as an insurance policy against the portfolio. If you have a four five hundred thousand dollar portfolio, it's you know it's like having a house valued at four hundred thousand. What would you feel like if you had you know a twenty percent drawdown in that and you lost you know a hundred thousand of your five hundred thousand portfolio kind of thing? Options can be used. So think about them as insurance. You insure other things in your life. Why wouldn't you insure your portfolio? But you know the other thing about that is that. With a car, we insure it every day of the week, right? We insure it for the whole year, same with our house. But with, with our portfolios, you don't have to insure it all the time. You can go into a situation like the end of last week and think, yeah, this market's rallied up a lot. I think, you know, there's a bit of data coming out in the next few weeks, a few news. Maybe the next couple of months won't be so good. You can become a bit nervous at times or there's an event happening or whatever. And you can buy options just for the next two months and just to cover yourself for that particular you know, event or this particular time that you think, yeah, you know, my portfolio has done very well. I think it's time. Uh, it's almost as a, you know, in a way, it's like taking profits, but you're just hedging, you know, you're just protecting yourself if it, there was a drawdown. Um, and I actually think they're very important for that. Um, we've, you know, we've been fortunate the last, you know, 10, 15 years that the market has generally done very well. But a lot of that's been down to the fact that when there has been weakness, central banks have come in and, and cut interest rates, which has helped markets. You know, that, we're in a different environment now. Central banks are not cutting interest rates right now. And I think in that sense as well, every investor needs to have, you know, needs to be thinking this might be different this time, you know, in, in terms of, you know, there could be drawdowns and the, you know, US markets down by about some of them indices by about 20%. So options are a very good instrument for hedging, um, for protecting your portfolio, particularly from, you know, larger moves. You wouldn't, you know, if you look, you know, most of us will be happy with like a five or 6% drawdown, but, you know, 10, 15, 20% drawdowns or whatever. I think people could use them to protect themselves. So they're very good for that. They are also, you can be used as a, in, in a speculative way. Um, you know, if you think that, you know, a, a stock could jump a lot, but you don't really want to buy it, then options are a cheaper way of getting access to upside in a stock. Uh, as well. I just I wanted to touch on that too because uh, this is one that I didn't trade, but in hindsight I thought about it. When the market, the Aussie market here, fell into June, there was a stock I was eyeing off. Uh, it's quite well known. It's called uh, Regroup, which is the the real estate listing point. Reason being was that it had already gone down at that stage from like 175 bucks a share to it hit I think about 98, and I was sort of thinking. You know, so I pick it up on the as a kind of contrarian long-term thing. You know, overall, yeah. it's got a very powerful position kind of thing. But because the at that stage I was worried about the market dropping further, I hesitated. Yeah, and so I didn't end up buying. And uh, what are we? A couple of months later, it's up thirty percent. Yeah, there was an options trade there to buy a call option on to on that stock, which gives you time to see what happens. Um, an option to buy the share later on, right? So you can, yeah. so, and what I mean is like, even now I've started buying a few shares uh, that I think are cheap and that, but having uh, some puts, it's like, it protects you because the market's so uncertain is what I'm saying is yeah. you can sort of be aggressive in one way, but protect yourself in another way. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> options obviously a lot cheaper, right? Than buying the stock. And you've put a, a really good example uh, and there are examples of this during COVID as well, when stocks fell sharply, that particularly when you've got a stock that's fallen so much, you're always worried about buying, you know, catching the falling knife, right? You're always worried about those stocks. Um, and using call options rather than actually buying the stock is, is a really good way of 
potentially accessing that upside um, of saying, yeah, I don't want to buy, uh, you know, 10 grand's worth of this stock, for example, but I will buy $1,000 worth of options. You know, knowing that each option gives you access to potentially 100 shares, but you've bought a lot, you've, you've outlaid a lot less. But, you know, if that stock does rally, you know, the returns are a lot, obviously options the way that they're geared and, and can be very good. So that's how you can end up with the same sort of P&L that you would have had from buying $10,000 worth of mm. shares, but you've done it in a safer way. And if you're wrong, then you've only outlaid the $1,000 of options, right? And, and they, obviously they have an expiry and it. Yeah, they could expire uh, worthless, but you don't have to hold them till the end. You can sell them before that. Um, but the point is, yeah, and particularly when things are falling very sharply, buying call options, for example, you know, is a good way to access that upside when you're a bit worried about it, um, you know, that it could be further downside. So there's a lot of different ways of using options. And one thing that, you know, we've just highlighted with the, the two main examples we've used with hedging and accessing, particularly, you know, in weak environments, we've both talked about buying options. Um, and I think that's really important as well, right? A lot of people... Uh, the most common use of options for retail traders in particular is is to sell them, um, to, to sell them. And, and it's called, in many cases, they call it, you know, uh, referred to as like generating income. It's not, okay? You will never hear a professional option trader say that selling options is an income generating uh, tool. It's not. Income is very different from selling options. Um, and when you sell options, if you end up making money because the options expire worthless or you buy them back cheaper, you're being compensated for risk. It's not income. If you go to work every day, you earn income, right? That's, that's what income is. You get paid regardless. With options, when you sell them, that's not income. You know? And sometimes you know, your option trade goes badly. If you sell options, you can lose 5, 10, 20 times the money you put in. That doesn't happen when you go to work. You know, you get paid, you don't have a month where suddenly you've got to pay your boss 20 times what, what he paid you last <laughs> month, right? Yeah. That doesn't happen. You get paid. So it's not income. And I'll be very wary of anybody that calls selling options uh, as uh, income. It's not. You're being compensated for risk. You have to understand that risk and, and then also understand whether you're being compensated accurately. Uh, I'm not a big fan of selling options. I think they're better tools to be uh, to use from the buyer side because of the risk reward payoff. I'm going to use a strange quote here, but there was an AFL football coach who used to talk, Malcolm Blight, there's a, there's a kick in AFL footy called the torpedo, right? So it's like a higher risk. You go for the longer, longer territory with a torpedo. And he would say to his players, look, have one, have one crack at it. If it doesn't work, put it away for the day. Uh, mm -hmm. And I feel with options that they're a tool that should be used very selectively. Um, it's not to say that you get up every week and go, oh, what can I buy options on? And da, 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 da. Because for me, like, as you go, you get these fantastic payoffs, but those situations only present every now and again. Is that generally how you view the options yeah. market? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, if in both of those examples I've given, either with, uh, as a hedging instrument or the one, like you said, with the REA, where you think it's, look, it's just falling sharply. I don't want to be catching this falling knife, but by the same token, I think there could be some upside. Um, both of those are not events that are happening daily. Um, so yeah, you selectively choose a situation. Sometimes options are just priced too expensively as well. And you sit there and go, I like this thing, but it's not offering me the risk reward. You've got to make sure that it's offering you the right risk reward. Um, but if you, yeah, they need to be selectively used. And if you can selectively use them, they are great tools um, used properly. But, you know, yeah, it's 100% agree with that. Yeah. 
I was just thinking, let's step back a bit and just talk a little bit about the market that we're in. Um, it's been, as we talked about before, it's been a tough 12 months uh, for a lot of different strategies, whether it's momentum or, or long or whatever. Um, there's a concept in finance, a very basic one called a bear market. Now, when the index, get, the, the so-called theory is that when an index goes down 20%, we're in a bear market. Now, I can say from personal experience that by the time the X, uh, XJ200 was down 15% or whatever it was in June, a lot of stocks had already fallen 80%, 70 60 like they'd been hammered. Do you think that idea of a bear market uh, is even useful? No, not the 20% number. I think that's just uh, an arbitrary number, right? Um, it's a little bit like the the discussion or the argument about in the US in particular about the, the two negative quarters equals a, a recession, right? This arbitrary numbers in a way, it's not really important, you know, is the US in a recession? Is it not? It doesn't matter. They're creating jobs at the moment. So it's a very different type of recession if it's a recession. Um, same with the 20%. I think it's an arbitrary number. Um you know, well, that's very, what, basically what I'm saying is like, well, yeah, I've I already lost eighty percent of my money. Just yeah. and now you tell me it's a bear market. Well, no, yeah, it, it doesn't a bear matter. <laughs> you have to react <laughs> to your portfolio, right? Everybody has to react to their portfolio and what they're doing. Um, and you're right. If you had a very tech-heavy portfolio, you, it was very possible you were well down. You know, before that, you have to react to what you're doing. And just because the, you know, in the media or someone calls it a bear market now because it's down twenty percent, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that things are different from when the market was down 18%, right? It's probably just still as bad. Um, and really, you have to react to the situation that you see and the situation that you face at that moment and, and react accordingly. Do you think there's some truth, though? So just in lieu of that, so I'm trying to think of your average guy who's got his port, a bit like my mate, he's got his portfolio there, he's not really watching it, he's doing his other things, he's retired. Um, most of us closer to the market already know things are ropey by the time Somebody you know, picks up his paper and it's like, oh, it's a bear market now. Um, mm. So the, the challenge, so if you're listening to this, is like not everybody can follow the market all the time. So therefore, you do you think in general people should either allocate their money to a fund manager and, 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 and just say, look, it's their job to manage it and we see what happens? Or if they are going to actively be involved in some way, they do need to be following day to day what's going on. Or can yeah, you do a, a sort of in between half, half and half kind of thing? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm maybe as a trader, I'm maybe not the person to, to ask about that, that investment strategy side. I think that the usual situation is that when conditions are quite straightforward and easy, anyone can do it, right? And everyone can make money. It's only when it gets tricky that, that the pro should do better. But saying that, you know, uh, the average investment fund is down this year and there's a lot of hedge funds even that are down this year as well. So um, it's in perhaps perhaps even some of the pros, well, it's true, some of the pros are struggling right now as well. Um, so it, it is difficult. I, I do case. think that, it, sorry? It's a case-by-case case situation, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, you can't I, I do think, no, and I, I do think you have to, be able to identify like where you are, what, what your portfolio is doing. And that's why I said, like, it doesn't really matter what people say about, are we in a bear market or not react to what your portfolio is doing, right? What, what is your portfolio? What is, you know, what are your account doing right now and react to that? Um, and I do think, like I, I've said before, like I, you know, I'm a 
big supporter and, and believe that hedging is an important thing. And I think, like I say, we, I've said before, people hedge their houses, they hedge or they insure their houses, they insure their cars. They have no protection, most people, for their you know, superannuation accounts or their portfolios. And I, I think that's a weakness, right? It, it makes you, it gives you a weakness. And I understand people say, but I'm in it for the long haul. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes these, these, down moves you know maybe we haven't had one in australia but you know if you talk to people in japan back in the day and that it can they can last for 20 years right they can um mm. you can't always say that we're always going to come back and you know and, and not only is, that it's it's just an uncomfortable position to put yourself in because yeah, absolutely. You know, theoretically yeah. you're in it for the long haul but like my mate he logs into his account every you know most days and he's like oh fuck you know i've just well, lost you know x amount of dollars uh and it niggles it's obviously going to niggle him the whole time until yeah. his supposed long term uh absolutely and as as a you know as a hedge fund manager like one of the things you have to understand and people that try to transition between managing money for themselves and managing money for other people one of those transitions is that there is no long term if the short term is really bad right for, for a money <laughs> manager yeah if you have five six seven eight months of you know, of bad losses, then money will be taken away from you. People are going to, you know, you're going to suffer redemptions and your, your fund will close. So, you know, we have to learn, I have to learn that idea of being able to stay in. Um, and, you know, I've said, I think I said it in the book there, right? That there, there's no long term if you don't get through the short term. Um, you can suffer, you know, people can say, and I know people, and you probably know, I'm sure you know people that, for example, 2008 crash, you know, the, the GFC, I, I know people that lost everything in that, their whole, um, you know, their accounts and everything, you know, they, they there was no long-term for some people um, and you just don't want to be there. And so you have to look at all the time. What is my weakness? Where am I weak? If your weakness is if the market falls or one sector falls, and that's a great thing about the modern markets, perhaps 15, 20 years ago, harder to hedge, right? Harder to get access to options. But now there's not just options that you can use to hedge. There are sector ETFs. So if you have a portfolio that's heavy on technology, you can hedge that with, you know, by selling a technology ETF potentially, right? And, you know, if you have a hundred grand of technology shares, you can perhaps hedge with 15,000 of, a, you know, in, in a way of a technology ETF, for example, or eat options on a technology ETF. There's so many different ways of hedging the weak parts of your portfolio at any moment. Um, and I think, you know, it's always important to say like, what, what, what are you doing and, and related to where the market is and, Clearly, market conditions now are very different to market conditions 12 months ago. You know, 12 months ago, the RBA was saying they're not looking at hiking <laughs> rates until 2024, right? 12 months ago at Jackson Hole, um, Fed Chair Powell said inflation is transitory. We won't be hiking next year, right? Clearly, or both parties were wrong. And clearly, the situation now is very different. So, you know, I would suggest to people, if your portfolio structure or your trading style, or whatever it is, is the same now as it was 12 months ago, you're probably wrong, right? You're probably not in the right space because the market is Which is how those now. fund managers, most of them, which you alluded to, were down for the year. They got caught out. They went with the central yeah. banks. Interest rates are not going to go up. We'll go long, all these things. And, of course, Ukraine comes, oil spikes, the rates go up, and everything gets jumbled up. And, of course, they get burnt um, yeah. because things change. So that, in yeah. terms of strategy, is another thing which you have in your book is, and I think it would be very applicable now, is that when things are volatile and I'm going to say uncertain, they're always uncertain, but extremely uncertain, that 
the best strategy is to shrink your timeline down and uh, or certainly the best one, the one strategy and trade shorter timeframes rather than long ones. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think at the moment, trying to figure out where we'll be in 12 months, you know, as I say, all the central banks were wrong, right? For, for sure, a lot of money managers. Um, mm-hmm. It's like 12 months now, no idea. Look at the, some of the movements in commodities this year. They've been significant, both on the rally and now on the fall. Um, uh, where we'll be in 12 months, I have got no idea, frankly. It looks to me, for example, that inflation is is subsiding. You know, it looks like that. Those some of those pressures anyway are, are lower. Some of them are not. Um, but I wouldn't be able to tell you with any confidence like what an inflation print will be in 12 months' time. Uh, and, and that's really going to drive where interest rates are, which is in turn is going to drive where equities and risk assets are as well. So when you're not sure where things are going to be, then, yeah, you take risk off the table. Um, you position shorten your time down, horizon. I'm assuming? Sorry, position size down, yeah. Take risk off the table. Position size down. So any new investments you would make, you'd probably make them in smaller size than you normally would because it's just too unclear. Um, so position size down, um, you know, use of hedges for existing investments. Um, shorter term time horizon. Now, if, as an if, and that's particularly for trading, right? You would you, you trade a lot shorter. And from an investment perspective, I just think it means you just got to reassess more often, right? Is this still right? You know, because you know you could have bought copper was flying. You know, early maybe early this year was a, you know I can't remember exactly when it was, but probably go back eight twelve months. Yeah. Copper was flying. You think yeah this is great. You know now the last three to six months copper's down what twenty percent or something. Completely environments completely changed. So you've got to completely continually reassess what what things are happening. Am I still is, is this still going the right the right place to be? Is this still the right positioning to be? Um, and you know, and then you can start to you know crank up and increase up when things become a bit clearer. I think things are unclear now, frankly. Um, well, the, the interesting, <coughs> sorry, uh, to me is also this is part of the not only the risk management but the opportunity step because it's like all those things that were sold down on high inflation. Well, if inflation is cooling off, well, then there's an argument to say, well. They're going to re-rate back up, uh, you know, if things uh, yeah. come together. So it's both uh, that uh, the Chinese word or whatever it is for crisis and opportunity is the is the yeah. same thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and again, that ability to be contrarian, that ability to work out what's being priced in, could they be wrong? Um, you know, I think. You know, and, and I I don't know where the market will be in, in 12 months. I've got no idea. I'm happy to say I've got no idea. Um, and I don't play that game of trying to predict it either. Um, but I think if, if you go back like eight or 12 months, it felt like everything was rising in price, right? All the commodities were going up. Every commodity was rallying. Um, you know, we should see in the shops, all that used car thing, even you know, here in Australia, we all saw that, right? Prices were going crazy, but it doesn't feel that way right now as it did then. You know, and a lot of commodities have fallen 20, 25%. So that's a difference. Another key difference with six to 12 months ago is the Chinese currency has has fallen substantially, whereas it had been rallying since COVID. You know, and basically everything, you know, the world buys is from China. So if the Chinese currency rises as it did by about 10%, the price of everything was going to rise. But now, you know, the last three to four months, the Chinese currency against, against particularly against the US, has fallen a lot. So there's a lot of things that are different now that, that were some of those pressures are, look a lot less than they were six to 12 months ago. Um, but energy prices, particularly in Europe, still look a bit crazy. And of course, they're a big component of um, 
of uh, of CPI, although they, mm. you know, there is a stripped out version, you know, where sometimes it's like excluding energy, which I think, you know, we might get a bit of that in there. Um, so yeah, it's 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 difficult to find out, and and you know, I'd say like you, you you hit the nail on the head before, like there are times to 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 throw all your chips in, and there are times to to sort of you know bring it in a little bit and become a you know i think probably now is one of those times to just be a little bit more careful um and um and it comes back to yeah your, your goal obviously is is to make money and to do well but your first goal is to preserve your capital always is to preserve your capital whether i'm a hedge fund manager whether i'm just a trading with my own or whether you're an investor right preserve stay in the game stay here and i've been talking i've been doing interviews recently i've been talking about this idea of a of trading and investing as an infinite game not as a, a finite game yeah i read the article i i Quoted you in my recent issue. I thought it was a fantastic oh, yeah. point. Yeah, I wrote about it in uh, in my newsletter, right? And it's a really interesting concept, and I think it's one that people misunderstand. And you hear about winning traders and winning in. You don't win in this business, right? You. It's not a winning and losing business. It, it, it's it's not like a football game. You know, I can turn around and say Liverpool won nine nil on you know, Saturday night. Yeah, that's a game. They won it. The game's finished. They have won. It can't change. They have won it. Um, this industry, you never win. You just stay in it. That's it. Um, so that's a key uh, mindset of people, you know, and stay in it when others are struggling. Um, if you have that winning mindset, you you can often take on, you're playing the wrong game effectively. I was just thinking just to, to sort of conclude, I suppose, this discussion, because we started with Kirill, the young guy who wants to to learn a bit more and it's just interesting uh, listening to you talk there. You mentioned the Chinese currency, and I was thinking to bring up the bond markets because of interest rates and that type of thing. Yeah. So I was, uh, from your perspective, alluding to your book, getting information from multiple markets is important, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, you should be looking across markets for different clues. You know, what, what are they saying? So, um, you know, right now, for example, US, right, twos, tens, uh, bond yield curve is inverted, you know. Um, and because the Fed have moved away out of the bond market now to a degree, okay, they're going to start QT, which is a big factor, right? And it's a big reason why a lot of pros are, uh, are negative and bearish right now on markets is because of QT. Um, we don't quite know what 95 billion of QT is going to do to markets, but it, it might not be pretty. Um, but twos, tens in the US, you know, inverted yield curve, you know, that's that paints a negative picture going forward for the US economy. Now, you would say that equity investors ignored that in July and August. Um, but perhaps now they'll start to look at that, you know, and it's when you start to get these conflicting views. And if you just you, well, essentially what you're saying you is the bond see. market and the equity market are pricing in two different things, right? In that yeah, situation. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The bond market, exactly. They're pricing in two different things. And so you need to weigh that up, you know, and the times when they're in sync with each other and you can work out they're in sync, you can put, commit more capital to, to the, to the equity market. But when they're, when you've got markets telling you different things, um, that's when you, you need to be a bit more cautious. Um, so looking at, you know, government bonds and yield curves, looking at corporate credit as well, what's happening in the corporate bond market. You might think this company is great, but perhaps the you know the bonds are struggling a little bit. So can you see what corporate credit is doing? Um, you know, and look across a number of different markets. We know, for example, even you know correlations they can be positive, they can be inverse. Um, 
uh, we, but we can get clues from markets as well. Um, and that's what we try to find out and try to put a picture together. Not always possible, not always easy, but we're not saying it's easy. Yeah. So, I mean, just as an example, that for me is the, the REIT sector here in Australia was absolutely hammered in the last 12 months because rates are rising. And then you get the bond market going, well, maybe that inflation problem is solved. Well, that could be a tailwind for that sector. Is this just an idea that I'm exploring? So that's a that's an example of how that can feed into it. All right. Well, I don't want to tie up because we, 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 um, we've held you up too long, but you did mention that you've got a new book on Amazon. Do you want to quickly tell us about that? Yeah. So obviously one of my, one of my key favourite things is to, to uh, explain to people why technical analysis is such an unreliable form of analysis. A lot of traders and investors use it. It's very popular all over the world, but it's unreliable. And I wrote a book a number of years ago, and I've basically now redone it, rewritten it, uh, updated. It's on Amazon as a Kindle version uh, called Technical Analysis Exposed, Why Most Technical Analysis Traders Lose. And it's basically a step-by-step breakdown of all the flaws, the faults, and they're also using uh, uh, research um, from all over the world. Some, you know, very robust research, which actually looks at how traders who use it, how they go, and you know, to tell people what the truth is about this. Um, so that's uh, was republished on Amazon a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's that's available now as well. And if people like what I say, I have a newsletter on Substack. Um, and most of what I try to do is to sort of I suppose, to walk people through some of the uh, BS in this industry, right? And just try to correct people, I suppose. And um, yeah, just challenge. Yeah, and we should what, say you're totally the- independent and um, uh, bring yeah, a, I- you know, a voice of experience. That I don't think there's an equivalent figure here in Australia, certainly. Uh, just try to you. tell people things that they might not hear elsewhere. Try to challenge so-called conventional wisdom sometimes, but not just for the point of doing it, not, not contrarian for the point of being contrarian. I do it backed by, you know, uh, hopefully some interesting aspects and uh, research as well. All right, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. And uh, we'll Thanks. catch Thanks up hopefully in another six months and we'll see where the world has gone with some of the things that we've talked about. But it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, mate. Really enjoyed it. Keep well and I hope to see you again soon.